today in space. Today, today in space. What's happening, everybody? And welcome to Today in Space. It is July 17th, 2016. How's everybody doing? I hope you're doing well. Uh, gotta apologize. I, I said it on Twitter already, but uh, I do want to apologize for uh, setting standards I'm not meeting. Uh, and what I mean by that is... Uh, telling you guys an episode's going to be out on Thursday when I actually don't know if that's the case. Uh, like I said, time management, still working on that stuff, and I shoot really high. But one thing I got to do is shoot high and have a plan to land because uh, I've just been crashing and burning for telling you guys when stuff's going to come out, and that's not fair to you guys. So uh, there will be an episode every week. Look for them on Monday mornings. Um, you know, it's just uh, my schedule during the week. I have a full-time job, so that takes priority, and then everything else falls in line. So until I can get this to uh, be on its own, you know, we're going to stick at Monday mornings, and we'll do it there. That way uh, I can make sure you guys have an episode every week. So moving on. Has anyone else noticed that the world is really crazy? I mean, seriously, like all the shit that's been happening. I mean, the good and the bad. I mean, I'm I'm personally not surprised, but it seems that some people are like really surprised that the world is this nuts. I mean, it's always been nuts. Life is nuts. The fact that we're even fucking conscious of the shit that's going on is is incredible. Um, but one of the biggest things moments in modern human history where it just takes you by storm. I mean, we have to talk about what is going on with fucking Pokemon Go, all right? We have to talk about that because this shit is crazy, all right? In its first week, in its first week, someone has died. There... There have been people getting mugged and, like, drawn into places because of this game. This game that took the world by storm before. Completely engulfed an entire generation of children. And and became an instant classic. Has now come back to wreak, once again, <laughs> the Pokemon craze on the world. Now, it's not all bad stuff. I mean, yes. Is it kind of crazy to see a whole bunch of, you know, 20-something-year-old people uh, <laughs> huddled around, you know, talking to each other? But is that really a bad thing? I mean, it's everyone who's using this. I mean, you if you've looked at it, there's plenty of, of just instances where people are interacting. People are, are talking with each other, recognizing each other's existence. And, like, being a part of something, that it's a very interesting thing that's happening, that it's affecting human culture and how humans interact with each other. And it's, having, it's helping peop, 
humans interact with just everything. I mean, I think it's a very cool concept. You take the video game and you put it in the real world and you put it in places that have some historical significance, some place for people to learn. So you're going around learning about these different monuments, just like you learn about the different places in the game, right? You're going around meeting different people. You see a group of people. You're like, oh, there must be a Pokemon over there. (laughs) It's crazy. They brought the game reality into our reality, and it's affecting us. How fucking crazy is that? And, and and even more than that, even more than just the people interacting and and talking to each other and not being like headfirst into a video game, which is a, a, a dynamic change from how video games are, you know, normally. But it's getting an entire group of people, arguably the group of people that needs to work out the most an obsessive reason to move, get out, experience the world. Like, a video game that actually gets people to move around and walk around and and makes them want to get around and move around. I think that's the most important thing. You know, we had the Wii, which was very interesting. You know, the Wii uh, got people moving around, but still, you could be 600 pounds and be using a Wii and using a Wii isn't going to help you lose weight. You know what I mean? Like, yes, it is movement, but it wasn't, you know, and we even have the ones where they watch you and you dance, and those are cool, but, you know, they're all movements for the sake of a thing in the game. It's not something you would obsessively want to do. You know what I mean? So the walking that these people are doing is fantastic. It's a great thing. And... It's, it's getting people out there. Now, plenty of things need to come along with that. Again, who's at fault here? People are getting mugged. People are getting involved in things that they shouldn't be getting involved in. Uh, the person getting hit by the car and dying. Like, some of this stuff <laughs> is people need to just have some common sense and it's crazy that we need to have a PSA to say don't not walk around with your head in your phone or else you might get hit by a car or don't don't just trust somebody because you think they're playing Pokemon Go that they're a good person (laughs) assess the situation you know so it's just it's crazy but this is what something like this does. Like, I think the only other thing in recent history that did something to that nature was kind of the ice bucket challenge. Uh, doesn't have the overwhelming, sweeping, dynamic change that Pokemon Go has had, but it became a craze overnight, and then it became something that everybody was talking about. Everyone was... They, uh, mo- tons of people were getting into it to the point where they were saying, stop doing it because we have water shortages. You know, that became this whole other thing. You know, with the Pokemon Go stuff, I, it's only begun and in its first week has changed the world. The first weekend, I was I was gone in New York. I came back. The world was different. The world had changed over a fucking weekend because of a video game. That's how crazy it is. So I had to bring that up because as a 26-year-old, 
all I want to do is play that fucking game because it's awesome. Pokemon is the shit. But I have things I have to do, and I, I know I, would, I have an addictive personality. I would be obsessed with that game. So for my own health, I'm avoiding it. But I do want to watch people play it. I think it's fucking hilarious watching people walk around, notice each other, and know right then, yo, is there, is there a Pokemon around? Like, this shit is hilarious. Like, it's just going to be fun as hell to watch. Uh, but anyways, welcome to the show. And we've got a 3D printing update and a special Pluto anniversary, flyby anniversary, because it was one year, July 14th. We're going to go back to the very first episode. I talked about Pluto. We cut it up, remastered it for you, and that's what we end the show with. So let's do it. All right, and it's time for the 3D printing update, brought to you each and every week by AG 3D Printing. So this week in 3D printing was been was a pretty interesting week, and uh, it started off uh, almost disastrous, or at least how, that's what it seemed. So I was having a lot of trouble with my print bed leveling, which is of course one of the most important parts in every 3D printing process is making sure that the bed le- is level to the nozzle where the plastic's coming out. And not only make sure that the size of each layer is the same, but it's also super important for the plastic to stick on that first layer. That initial layer is so crucial to the process. So it's something that everyone who's in 3D printing is aware of because it's the only way that they can get their parts to form. So uh, this new printer is very different from my last printer. The RigidBot, which is still uh, in repair, is uh, very much like, ah, do it till it feels right. Um, Basically, you use two sheets of paper underneath the nozzle in four different areas, you know, in the four corners, basically, of the plate. And you move an Allen wrench. There's like four screws. And you kind of just feel until it tugs, you know, with just two sheets of paper underneath. And then you do that in four areas. So not accurate, but it got the job done. And with this new printer, it's a lot different. You know, it's got these four little corners uh, on the bed plate, these little metal corners. And the tip has a little probe on the end of it. And it tells you how many turns you need to turn these uh, little bolts on the screws to make it level. So it's like really cool and awesome, but the problem is it, it gets out of it gets out of whack. And if you're like me and you kind of just start doing something without reading instructions, then it gets a little frustrating. Luckily, the big difference I've noticed is the first printer I had is an open source printer. It's something for DIY people, people who want to challenge, figure out things, and, and make it completely their own. That's the beauty of the RigidBot and why I got it in the first place. But as far as support goes, there is a great online group, but it's it's pretty much you've got to figure it out. You know, uh, this it's on it's on you. You know, there is no warranty with an open source anything. But with this new XYZ printing printer, I gotta say, the customer support when you really need yourself to be up and printing is so important, and it's. It's worked out so well, you know, having a company to talk to, to get some advice, 
And then they had some great tutorials online. And it comes down to the fact that <laughs> I, I didn't really read the tutorial very well. And the more I dug into it, it's very cool. You know, you can uh, basically what you got to do is you got to set the print bed all the way up, then go down two millimeters so that the little probe uh, can actually get close enough to touch the uh, metal corners. It's actually how high the metal corners are off the bed. And then you just keep twisting until each of the four corners touch. And then you can do the process, and then that calibrate function brings you in nice and easy. Because if you're doing what I was doing earlier and you're not level enough, then it's, it's always chasing. It's always chasing trying to be level, and you'll never get there. So that was a big learning curve this week was do that manual touching on the corners first, get it close, and then run it. It saved me so much time. Like I can't even tell you like the difference from how long it takes me now, maybe like uh, 20 minutes now is good. Before it was taking, I, I spent an entire day after work, I think it was like three hours, so it was, it was basically the entire time I had while I was home before I had to go to work the next day. <laughs> I spent doing it, and it was so frustrating. But I had help. I figured it out. And now I'm actually working on cranking that time down from 20 minutes because I actually tweaked out a little bit more of how to get that to work better. So uh, a really productive week here at AG3D Printing. So that that's awesome. We're really learning our machines here and being able to, to run them at their best. So that, that's what we're trying to do here. Uh, further on, we also I also had a, a fraternity brother who had a birthday this week. So I wanted to actually print him something that would just be cool. So I looked online, and it turns out there's a, they call it a can holder, but in the gift was given to be a beer can holder. Uh, and it has our fraternity name on there unlike um, depressed lettering, and, you know, it's a pretty cool thing. You slip the top of the can in first, then you slide the bottom until it clips, and it's, it's, it's really sturdy. You know, it really is when the can's in there. It's like a, it's like a mug handle. Uh, the whole thing is, is sturdy. Yeah, repeat myself again. Uh, but um, once you're done with your can, once you crush your beer, all you got to do is crush the can in the middle so that it kind of bends a little bit and it comes out so easily. So, uh, pretty, pretty cool design. Got it off Thingiverse. Um, you can, uh, check the link in this week's episode if, uh, you're interested, but cool stuff really was. And, and, you know, we're printing with ABS very well here now. Um, we've kind of gone through our iterations of, you know, figuring out how to make it and, and we're ABS, same plastic Legos are made out of is something we can do here now, uh, pretty pretty successfully. So I'm very happy to say that. Um, and the print came out great. Uh, the brother loved it, and uh, a whole bunch of other people were like, "Oh my god, can you make me some?" So uh, really cool week this week, uh, showing off some stuff. And that was a cool print. That was a uh, the computer said it was going to take, the software said it was going to take eight hours and forty five minutes. Um, but it actually took nine hours and 30 minutes, which is really good, especially compared to my Rigidbot times. My Rigidbot times were uh, anything over two hours was going to last five hours, and I had never gotten the Rigidbot to run safely for over five hours. So 
um, to have a printer I can run uh, confidently overnight is uh, really, really nice. Uh, and, and the new setup, you know, the rave box, which uh, keeps all the fumes inside and it has an exhaust system in it, uh, you know, it's it's working very well. I'm I'm really happy with the setup. It's come so far from what it used to be. Uh, you know, it was just a, a open source printer just on the desktop. You know, uh, every time it had to print was a huge process. But uh, the learning curve is uh, starting to catch up, and and it's it's just really cool. Um, the other thing we did this week, which uh, is the next step in that last project we talked about with the patio furniture parts so customer has some parts that uh they don't make anymore patio furniture it holds the glass of the table uh the company isn't even you can't even find it online so when those parts break you know what is he going to do he's just going to have patio furniture that's you know rinky dink operation i mean he could you know he could ghetto rig it and maybe do some duct tape and stuff like that but you know he's he's an engineer he likes cool shit he likes nerding out so, so we're working on replacing those clips. So the first design we did with ABS, it was not, uh, it didn't fit the application. So the the size was right; it fit on the leg perfectly. Did what it, did the sizing was right, but it needs a little bit of give. The plastic, the ABS is a little too rigid. I mean, if you've ever stepped on a Lego, you know those things are fucking sturdy because it you you swear every time you step on a Lego, it sucks. Um, so. Uh, when it needs to clip into place, that's not the right material to use for that application. So I went on the search to go find some flexible stuff. And I found some stuff that was probably the most rigid of the flexible stuff that I saw out there. And it's called the NinjaFlex Semiflex filament. And uh, when we got it here, it's um, like a rope. It's like a rubber rope. Like, I think that's the best way I can describe it. Um, you can bend it. You can tie it into a knot, um, you know, compared to the ABS filament, which is like, uh, it's like handling solid wire, you know. It's it's very different. Um, it bends exactly into the same place where you left it, too. So, you know, you can build stuff. It's, it's really, really sturdy, like surprisingly sturdy. And I pulled it, and I couldn't pull it apart. It didn't break. So that's really cool. We're going to do a video on that material later. But to get back to it, uh, I tried to do the first test print with that this week, but I ran into a lot of issues. So the first issue was the first time I ran it through my printer, uh, it didn't work. It didn't, like, extrude from the nozzle. So I was trying to think, okay, what's going on? And I found out that... This is a typical problem with flexible filaments in what they're calling Bowden systems. So to explain that, i got to explain how plastic is fed through a 3D printer. So there's, there's two, two ways. They're both the same. It's just dependent on where the different parts of the machine system are. So you've got the nozzle that melts the plastic, right? But you need something to push the plastic through. So there's usually some dr dr uh, motor-driven uh, gear piece and like a roller that one of them grips and one of them helps slide. So it helps push the filament through at like a certain speed. So on, for instance, the rigid bot that we have, 
The RigidBot has a direct system because that motor that pushes the filament is right above the nozzle. And with every nozzle, every time you inject plastic, you're going to get this effect where, um, I should say 90% of the time, but you're going to get this effect where the melted plastic is good inside the nozzle, but there's always a little bit of dribble on the end of a nozzle. And so that ex that's exposed to the air. So that cools faster than what's going on in the nozzle. So sometimes the plastic hardens on the top, on the end of the tip, right? So with a direct drive, you have enough force to help push the molten plastic through so that it overcomes the fact that the plastic is hard on the outside and you're still good. So ABS plastic, PLA plastic work very well because the filament, you can push hard on that filament and you're okay. Like you, you can make that work. You don't have to overdo it or anything like that. With a Bowden system, which is the one that my current 3D printer has, Basically, you attach this little PVC tube. This is not PVC. Uh, that's the wrong... I, I don't think it's PVC, but it's a bendable clear tube, right, that you connect to the motor-driven part that pushes the filament, pulls it through. This is a two different things, but I think of it as pushing. Uh, it pushes the filament through. It's actually farther away. So it's easier to load your filament and to guide it in there, and it's, you know, it's it, it's a very beneficial system, but it doesn't give you the force you would need to push that filament out in the case of this flexible stuff, because if you're pushing on the flexible stuff and there's any kind of resistance on the other end, it's going to bend. It's just going to bend where it is, and you're not going to be able to push that filament out, and that's what was happening. I uh, tried it twice, and... You know, the first time you run the filament through, it's good because there's nothing in the way. So you're like, okay, great. This is working well. Let me start the print. By the time the print starts, the plastic on the end of the tip is already solidified. So you're, you're dead in the water. And another downside with the Bowden system, with the, the longer tube, is now basically you're wasting that entire strip because... What happens is the the motor part that pushes the filament, because it's because it's the plastic's bending, it's like pushing a rope. You can't push a rope, right? It's literally impossible. So this thing has been trying to push down, so it's not going anywhere. All it's doing is grinding away that plastic. So now that entire strip is useless. You can't use that. So uh, after two expensive tries for getting this thing to work, it just did not. Um, and... Uh, doing research out there, there's plenty of 3D printing companies out there, and just there's a lot of online shows that 3D print, and people who 3D print have online shows. And one side of the advice I saw was that you just don't use flexible filaments on a Bowden system. It just doesn't work. Uh, it's not easy. And, you know, people have tried and not made it work. The other side of the argument from what I've heard is that you have to treat it like it's a completely different material, which means you're not going to run it anywhere like you're going to run the other material that you've run before. You know, just for the simple fact that it you can't push it through like you can with the harder stuff means you have to approach it differently. And and that's the 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 way of thinking that I, I could definitely relate to a little bit better because I've worked in the plastics industry before. We've done injection molding before. And when you're with somebody, when, when someone 
knows how plastic works and has been around the industry. I was lucky enough to work with a guy named Ed who had been in the industry for years, since since the early, early days of the industry. So he just knew there's always a way we can make this work. We've just got to find a way to get the process right. And sometimes you don't treat it. You can't treat it like everything else. You've got to kind of figure out how does it work. And so the advice out there, uh, see if you can follow the logic here, the advice was slow down the speed that the gear is feeding the flexible stuff into the nozzle because then that way it's going to be able to put a bigger force behind it. You know, because if you're trying to go fast with something that's flexible, you know it's going to bend. But if you go kind of slowly, it deforms, but it doesn't deform as much. So you can still transfer that force along the whole thing. So we're going to try it out. I mean, just to give you kind of an idea, most 3D printers default to running about 30 millimeters a second. And I know that really doesn't mean anything to you. But comparatively, the guy uh, talking about was mentioning bringing it down to 5 millimeters per second, which is just, if you look at the numbers, that's a huge, huge difference. That's six times slower. So I'm uh, going to try that out next. That's going to be this week's project. And we'll let you know what happens then. And that's about it. It was a crazy week. Uh, Learned a lot of things and got through it. Uh, And that's it for the 3D printing update. Uh, It's brought to you by AG3D Printing. Uh, We're a 3D printing service. Uh, I am the owner and operator and engineer, all that shit. I've learned 3D printers and... I know you don't have enough time to go out there and learn it yourself. So if you've got a project, if you've got a business idea, if you've got a prototype you want to do with the school year coming up, if you've got a school project, if you just got want to do a really cool gift for somebody, I can help you do that. I, I know 3D printers. We've got 3D printers running, and we can help make those ideas into reality, you know, And you can go from every step of the process, whether you have a model yourself and you just need someone with a 3D printer, or you have an idea and you want to help make a design, I can help you design as well. Um, We've also got, if you've got stuff that's broken, like the last customer we've talked about, and there's no replacement parts, you know, there's no company to buy an extra part for this, uh, you can actually, if you have a spare, you can send that to us and we can make a 3D scan of it and then 3d print you more parts so there's a ton of stuff we can do here and all it takes is a little direction on your part you know what do you want to do we can help make it work this is the 21st century we have the technology so make use of it and come to me and we'll make it work we'll figure it out so just go to ag3d-printing.com let's try that again ag3dprinting-no Okay, it's a great advertisement. Uh, www.ag3d-printing.com. And you can get a quote and tell me as much information as you can because that'll just help me help you get the project done the way you need it to be, to shock and awe the people you're trying to show that business proposal to, to make that gift for that person extra special and and extra... um, original and if you got a school project and you really want to blow people away and you want to show that you are 
doing amazing stuff and really cool stuff and so that you can do really cool stuff, this is the way to do it. Having it in someone else's hands, having it in your own hands is such an amazing difference from a PowerPoint presentation. You know what I mean? So (laughs) put the 21st century into your own hands and make things possible. That's what we're offering you here at AG3D Printing. So thank you for listening to the 3D Printing Update. Let's move on with the show. This week, on July 14th, was the one-year anniversary of the New Horizons spacecraft doing its flyby mission, successful flyby mission, of the Pluto system. And Pluto has been kind of a central like a crux of the show. It's been a part of it from the very early days of the show. And you know, I came at people pretty hard with Pluto, <laughs> basically trying to figure out why everyone is so pissed that Pluto is not a planet anymore and not having the facts and, you know, trying to say that people are trying to do this for some reason. And I thought it was funny. <laughs> and Pluto has become in this last year, which I I can't even believe it's already here, we've learned so much about something we had no clue about. That's why we called the song Pluto the Misunderstood, because all we knew of it was two bright dots from a Hubble telescope picture, which just tells you how far fucking away that is, that the Hubble telescope can't even pick it up like, the details of it that's how far away it is three billion miles right so when people get pissed off about how you know pluto's not a planet anymore it's like dude we don't even know what it is we have a general idea with the science we have available to us but we don't know shit the best depiction of pluto was that looney tunes uh episode that looney tunes you just saw it going around during the the pluto flyby was a cartoon. So I came at people pretty hard <laughs> with Pluto. And throughout the process, you know, the, the debate has still been, is Pluto rightfully a planet? Should it be reinstated? Should it have never been taken down? Or was Pluto wrongly classified in the first place? And now classifying it as a dwarf planet is closer to what it actually is. You know, us putting a name on it doesn't change what Pluto is. The name should reflect what it is. So if it is, in fact, a dwarf planet, it should be called a dwarf planet. That doesn't mean we don't talk about it anymore. You know, there's there's tons of things in the solar system that could kill us, and we don't talk about them ever. You know, so it's like the planets aren't the only things. And if saying that it's not a planet anymore doesn't mean you're not going to learn about it. I think from what we've learned, Pluto is a system. You know, it's this complex world that lives on the outer brinks of our solar system, you know, and it's in the Kuiper Belt, which for what we know now is really just a treasure trove of of fascinating ancient artifacts of what we are, where we came from, how we came in existence in this area. And 
Pluto could be from there. The Pluto system could be from there. It also could be another world that came into our system and now habitates in the Kuiper Belt. But we wouldn't know until we got there, and we've learned so much, and there's still so many questions. Now, the debate still is up. Is it a dwarf planet or is it a regular planet? That is just a definition, and it's a definition that was only created not that long ago. You'll find out more about it when we go into the clip that we're going to play at the end of the episode here. But it's only dwarf planet is a brand new definition, and we'll be able to figure out what really is a dwarf planet, whether we were right, whether we were wrong. But all in all, that doesn't matter because this is just discovery. Everything we knew before this, there's nothing... It doesn't mean anything. Now we're learning. Now we're figuring it out. And that's why we did a whole April of Pluto. Because <laughs> there was so much information we found in just that first year. We haven't even downloaded all the data that was taken. We haven't even gotten it all back yet. Because it's still traveling across space. <laughs> so, relax. It's okay. Pluto is not going anywhere. And it's going to... It is glorious. Calling it a dwarf planet. Are, are you guys upset about the word dwarf? It's okay. Pluto was not offended. It doesn't give a shit. Okay? Relax. <laughs> Pluto is amazing, and we learn so much about it every day. Okay? So, enjoy this last piece. This is... Uh, Two thousand. Well, no, this is episode eleven, two thousand fourteen, December fifteenth, two thousand fourteen. I listened to it the other day, and I was like, "Holy crap! I sound younger." Um, <laughs> I can't believe it's only what a year and a half. Yeah, it's crazy how how much happens between now and then. Fucking go nuts. But anyways, that's the craziness of just one year from when we passed Pluto. We learned that much. So enjoy this. Have a great week, everybody. Remember, spread love, spread science, and keep doing you. Be righteously you. Spread yourself to the world. The world needs it, all right? Have a great week, everybody. We'll see you next week. Please enjoy this cut-up, remastered version of Episode 11, Pluto and the Pluto Express with New Horizons. Love you guys. See you next week. Hello, 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 everybody! How's it going? I'm your host, Alexander G. Orfanos, and this is Today in Space, December 15th, 2014. So, what are we going to talk about today? Today, we're talking about Pluto. Pluto! The ex-planet, newly classified dwarf planet. Uh, as of eight years ago, uh, there was outrage from both scientists and pop culture when that happened. Uh, even today, uh, people still make claims that Pluto was wrongly changed and should rightly be a planet. But why? What caused such an outrage? Let's take a look back in time and see. Back then, in space. The year 2006, according to an article entitled Pluto, Not a Planet, Astronomers Rule, by National Geographic News, uh, the International Astronomical Union met at a meeting and voted to determine a new definition for planets. 
they also had to have a multi-year search for a scientific definition of the word planet, apparently. Uh, the IAU's decision determined the classifications for a planet and subsequently a dwarf planet. Those classifications are as follows. One, a celestial body must be in orbit around its sun. Two, be round in shape. The planet itself must be round in shape. Number three, the planet must have a cleared neighborhood for its orbit or that its orbit has nothing in its path. Now, some disgruntled scientists were quoted saying, how round is round? Or better yet, what is normal? But in all seriousness, I mean, that's not a bad question. But that shouldn't be the first question you have. I mean, sack up and figure it out. Then you can name the classification of planets roundness equation after you. See? And then you win. It just opens up opportunity for you. You gotta look at it in the right light, guys. All right. Past person. Uh, more quotes from disgruntled scientists include, this will be an issue in the future. Almost sounds like a threat. Uh, Dozens of objects are going to be straddling this line. The new definition is not going to help us with this. Okay, but were you really expecting that from this decision? Someone had to pay for a multi-year search for a scientific definition of the word planet. And this was 2006. So I I think it's safe to say it's going to be a while before we find that out. Just take a chill pill in the past science, dude, and relax, all right? But Pluto did and still does not have a clear orbit around the sun, one that the other planets in the solar system do. So Pluto passed all but the last classification and was demoted. Or better yet, reclassified. Now, back to today in 2014, eight years later, there's speculation that Pluto is again a planet, but according to USA Today slash USA Now, uh, you would be wrong. And Pluto has not yet been considered reconsidered a planet. But there's a lot of excitement for that to happen. Uh, scientists at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, which would make them astrophysicists, not scientists. Come on now. Uh, the, but the astrophysicists there question whether it should be reinstated or at least be brought up again for discussion. Uh, and they weren't the only ones. Uh, we'll get back to that in a second. But uh, they held a debate and asked the crowd to vote as to whether Pluto should be a planet. And the crowd voted, yes, of course, Pluto. You are a planet. It's okay. We're sorry that it happened. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so we can get emotional about some orbiting body that we've never even seen. The best pictures we have of Pluto are all crap. Not that the pictures are bad. But the Hubble Space Telescope took a picture of it in 1994, and all you can see are two tiny orbs that are shining. The larger one is Pluto, and the smaller one is Charon. I mean, it's Charon, um, C-H-A-R-O-N. Uh, all we have are artist interpretations of what Pluto looks like. So if you think that Pluto has been a victim of injustice, please do me a favor. Go find a mirror. Uh, no, no, don't, don't worry. I'll wait a few seconds. Or pause it if you like. Okay. Now look at yourself and be honest. Why the fuck do you care? Did someone not give you a toy when you were younger? Who hurt you? Because Pluto doesn't give two shits about what you think of it. You're insignificant to Pluto. It lives in extreme environments that you wouldn't even last a millisecond in. It's so far from the sun that the range of temperatures on the surface of Pluto, according to Universe Today, can range from a low temperature of 33 Kelvin, that's negative 240C, or negative 400 degrees Fahrenheit, up to 55 Kelvin, which is... To minus 218 Celsius or minus 360 Fahrenheit. 
atoms theoretically stop moving at zero Kelvin. So think about that. This is Today in Space. Welcome. Okay, so New Horizons, uh, the mission uh, that was sent to Pluto, uh, it's just exited its last hibernation phase. So uh, hibernation phase, they shut down uh, as much of the equipment as they could to save on it. Uh, it uh, they kept a few things on to keep track of uh, solar wind and particles in the air because they, we'd love to know more about what's out there. Um, we have very little information as of it, um, but uh, it... So now it's the craft is on its approach to Pluto, uh, and it will make it to Pluto on July 14th, 2015. So um, we're going to have a lot of stuff coming up here, a lot of pictures, a lot of information. We're going to be learning about Pluto for the first time. So uh, if you like knowledge and like learning stuff, especially live, uh, come here. We'll, uh, we'll keep talking about it. Uh, so uh, the voyage itself it lasted nearly nine years and three billion miles i mean damn i mean that that's the farthest any space mission has ever traveled to reach its primary target um voyager one and voyager two did not go by pluto um so they didn't take any pictures so like i said before the best picture we have is from the hubble space telescope from 94 um and you know voyager one now is uh, in interstellar travel uh for those who don't know which means it's outside of um the influence of our sun, um, or at least that's what we think right now. You know, we're still getting data. Um, it's entered a new area in space, which we're considering the the end of uh, space. It's still debatable, um, but uh, we'll be talking about a few few other things. Uh, you know, the Pluto's many moons. We'll talk about a little bit later. We'll talk about Pluto's atmosphere. What's actually going on over there? Um, but uh, before we go there, um, the original mission. Um, was called Pluto, Pluto Kuiper Ex Express. Uh, let's try that one more time. Pluto Kuiper Express. There we go. Okay, so, um, but after funding and mission issues and, of course, uh, the reclassification of Pluto in 2006, um, they, you know, the mission changed and was then renamed New Horizons. Um, you know, the mission was set to launch in 2001, the, the Pluto Express, Um but uh, according to something I had read on the internet, um, it uh, wasn't ready really until two that until two thousand four, and with budget issues and all that stuff. Um, and uh, like we discussed before, people have big issues with the fact that Pluto is no longer a planet. Um, I, I, I don't get it. <laughs> I mean, if if we have a you know we like the fact that we didn't have a scientific definition for the word planet is perfect for us to finally come up with a real scientific definition, which I think that they're not bad. I think for a starting point, that's pretty good. I mean, how many things do we start? Sorry about getting too close to the mic there, folks. Uh, like how, uh, for, uh, we start a bunch of things. It, it's never perfect on the first time. This is just us, this is us working on it, guys. We're, we haven't even seen Pluto. That's like going on a blind date and saying you're going to marry the person. 
you have no idea. We don't, we, all we know is what <laughs> the data we have so far. So calm down and stick with the show and we'll find out whether it is. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. And that's totally fine because if it's right, I'll gladly join along. It's that easy. Let's get right back on track and talk about the New Horizons mission, what they're going to be studying, and uh, learn a little bit more about Pluto. Right, so the New Horizons mission, <clears throat> excuse me, launched on January 19th, 2006, aboard an Atlas V 551 first stage. It had a Centaur, uh, a Centaur, sorry, I was going to say Centauri, a Centaur second stage, and a Star 48B solid rocket third stage out of Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida. Its trajectory was determined for Pluto via a Jupiter gravity assist, which is why it launched at that time, because it was the perfect time to take advantage of that. Uh, the planets would align perfectly for that. Uh, so the first 13 months of the mission included checkouts for the spacecraft and the instruments, calibrations for those instruments, with a few small trajectory correction maneuvers and rehearsals for that Jupiter gravity assist, um, which is, is a very, very important piece of interplanetary travel. If we couldn't use the gravity or didn't realize we could use the gravity for assists, we'd have big problems. Um, so... Uh, the spacecraft passed Mars on April 7th of 2006, almost four months after the launch. Uh, now, the New Horizons, or Pluto Express, uh, I don't know, I, I like Pluto, Pluto Express, um, but for now, well, it's New, New Horizons. But anyways, it was on a rendezvous, rendezvous uh, with Jupiter, uh, and it was moving approximately 51,000 miles per hour. And it flew about three to four times closer to Jupiter than the Cassini spacecraft. Now... The Cassini, uh, for those that might not know, is the spacecraft that has been sending us amazing pictures of Saturn. I would take a look if you have the chance. Uh, it's incredible, and the photos are available for free on NASA.gov. <clears throat> Sorry, that's NASA.gov, under the multimedia section of the mission, uh, for home use and backgrounds and such. such. Um, if you do use it for something else, uh, please use that credit section uh, that should be underneath that and any image that's on the site. Uh, make sure the credit is due to the right people. Uh, they're giving it to you for free, people. So, anyways. So, uh, the New Horizons used Jupiter's gravity assist to propel it farther on its way to uh, Pluto. And on its interplanetary cruise there, uh, the spacecraft performed uh, plenty of hibernation modes. Uh, the last one that just happened, uh, which is why we're talking about it, was the 18th. Um, so, they did this to save wear and tear on the instruments so that they were ready when they got to Pluto. Um, they, there were annual spacecraft and instrument checkouts, trajectory corrections, instrument calibrations, and practice runs for all the different maneuvers that New Horizons will need once they get to Pluto. Um, as they're doing a sort of drive-by for their observations. Uh, you know, post-studies of the data, uh, of the encounter with Pluto begins four weeks before New Horizons makes its closest approach, where Pluto and Charon... Uh, will be encountered on the same day. On Earth, it will be July 14th, 2015. Uh, the spacecraft will be at its closest to Pluto at a planned 10,000 kilometers and at a speed of 31,300 miles per hour. At this point, uh, the daily studies begin. Um, now, how is New Horizons going to start daily studies four weeks after its closest approach with Pluto 
if it's going 31,300 miles per hour. Well, from what I can tell from the images I looked up in the mission, uh, the path of New Horizons is planned to be only fractions of a degree off of Pluto's orbit at that point. So it will only move a little farther away from Pluto with each passing Earth day. Uh, but we'll be moving relatively the same speed so that, you know, from, from Pluto so that it can gather all that data. So we have a good time. So well, the, the data, well, what about it? Uh, well, months before, probably starting pretty soon, I think three months before, uh, you know, we'll start seeing images of Pluto and Charon from about 65 miles, million miles away. Um, the mission team will also take spectra readings so that we can see what's in the atmosphere and anything else that we might be able to pick up around it and on the surface. Uh, now, on to the last Pluto days uh, before closest approach. That's right, there's Pluto days. Uh, Pluto and Charon rotate once every 6.4 Earth days, so that makes two Pluto days, uh, 11 to 12 Earth days. Uh, the team, uh, the science team, will take measurements of Pluto and Charon every half day. Uh, and we will have comparable data for what changes happen over the course of a Pluto day, day at a scale of 30 miles on, on the planet. Uh, now on to the encounter. Uh, this will be an intense, extreme 24-hour full Earth day for the mission team. They are going to be so freaking busy. Uh, and this will be from the half day before closest approach and a half day after. Uh, the team will be looking for ultraviolet emissions from the atmosphere of Pluto and make the best and only global maps of Pluto and Charon in green, blue, red, and a special wavelength that they made specifically uh, so that it can pick up readings of the methane frost on the surface of the planet. Uh, and uh, Charon, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, there will also be spectral maps in the near-infrared spectrum, which will tell the science team about Pluto and Charon's surface compositions, what it's made of, and locations and temperatures of the materials that make up their own respective services. Uh, after this intense science-packed day of insanity, uh, I'm sure there'll be lots of coffee, uh, there will still be more work to be done. Uh, the science team will use the time after the spacecraft passes to observe both Pluto and its moons from the dark side. Why? Because this is the perfect time to see if there's a haze in the atmosphere, to look for rings, uh, and see if the surfaces are rough or smooth. Um, so, pr pretty cool trick there, right? Uh, now, Pluto um, has, as of 2013, five known moons. Uh, in order of distance from Pluto... The moons are called Charon, Styx, like the river Styx, uh, Nix, Kerberos, and Hydra. Uh, Charon is half the size of Pluto and weighs seven times less. Uh, Pluto and Charon are tidally locked, so much so that the two are considered a binary object. Um, and Nix and Hydra are very small moons, and they're thought to be between 30 and 100 miles across. Uh, so what's what's left uh, for New Horizons, a.k.a. Pluto Express? Uh, will we just send it flying into the depths of space only to someday be wiped off some alien spaceship's window? Well, pending a NASA approval to extend the mission, uh, after that point, there may be more work to be done, which means more money um, because you have to pay for the science team to continue their work. So let's hope Orion is kept in budget and uh, that flat budget... Uh, doesn't mean that the the this mission will get the, the boot. Um, 
because there's so much it can do more. For instance, uh, if it does get approval, uh, New Horizons will be onto the Kuiper Belt and be looking for it should be doing passbys just like they do with with Pluto and Charon, uh, but to to some specific Kuiper Belt objects, and that would be from 2016 to 2020. Now, um, the Kuiper Belt is a large belt of asteroids and other objects that share space with Pluto and its moons. Um, or I should say, Pluto and its moon share space with the Kuiper Belt. Um, and they've been looking for these objects, uh, these specific objects, you know, for a while now, uh, to try and make sure that, you know, we're making good use of the spacecraft while it's already there. Um, you know, and it's, 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 it's very cool to see that we're, we're finally going to find out what Pluto looks like. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of excited for that. I've enjoyed thoroughly the pictures of Saturn. We're constantly learning new things from that. Uh, we've got, uh, for instance, Europa. Um, we're learning new things about that now, uh, about that it's, it's more like earth than we thought, you know, the multiple layers of ice and that there's an ocean underneath and that there might be life there, you know, before that was a, a, a pipe dream. No, nobody would have thought that was possible. Uh, and if we find more about Pluto, you know, we'll have more idea, maybe, maybe where it came from, you know, why is it here? Um, does it, does it, you know, is there evidence to say that Pluto can really be a planet? I mean, really, that's going to be, I think, the first questions that uh, might get answered is, is it really, you know, reasonable for this to be uh, a planet? Or did it come from somewhere else? Did it somehow make its way in here? Or was it in the Kuiper Belt? Um, maybe some information from this will lead us to more things on the Kuiper Belt. Uh, and, and more exciting finds out there so we can actually figure out what the heck's going on there um, but that's I, I'd say that's about it guys <laughs> <laughs>